Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dr. Gerda Lerner, a leader in the development of the academic genre of women's history, is our guest in this edition of Radio Curious. She was a major leader in the movement to study and record the history of women. Gerda Lerner led an extraordinary life from April 30, 1920 to January 2, 2013. She was a historian, author, and teacher, and ultimately a professor emeritus of history at the University of Wisconsin. Her academic work has been characterized by the attention she drew to the differences among women in class, race, and sexual orientation. She grew up in Vienna, Austria, suffered in the Nazi persecution of the European Jews, came to the United States as a teenager, and married a writer who was subsequently blacklisted in the 1950s. She entered Columbia University in 1958, originally to take a few classes, and by 1966, she had earned a doctorate in history. Fireweed, a political autobiography, is her story of her life up to the time she enrolled in Columbia University. Professor Lerner and I visited by phone from her home in Wisconsin in October of 2002 and began with her description of why the distinctions among women of class, race, and sexual orientation are important. First of all, when we are speaking about women and their history, uh, I think we have to understand we're speaking about the majority of humankind. We're not speaking about a small minority group that can be easily identified by one or or another characteristic. And I think this has been one of the uh, important discoveries that people that have um, tried to resurrect the history of women have had to deal with. We cannot make generalizations about women any more than we can make valid generalizations about men as a group. They're too large and too varied. So what we have come to see is that whatever we study and whatever we say about women has to be qualified or um, distinguished by paying attention to the location of the women who they are, which particular subgroup they might fit into. In in describing those subgroups, um, are there some particular uh, key points or classifications that you found to be important? Well, uh, race in in America is a very important uh, divider, you know, and uh, color. I mean, race is an invalid term, but it's used as a metaphor for distinguishing people of color from so-called white people. And uh, class, the economic location, the kind of work you do, you know, the kind of economic resources you have access to, the kind of educational resources a woman has access to. Religion is an important marker. There are many different markers uh, in, in uh, one of the achievements of uh, 
women's history has been to call attention also to um, differences um, based on sexual orientation. Uh, those have, in the past, have been totally overlooked. We, we just uh, assumed everybody was alike under the rubric women, and that isn't so. All right. So this is one of the refinements that the field has made as it has grown. Um, in, in terms of Fireweed, your political autobiography, what motivated you to write it? Well, uh, a number of things. Uh, I wanted to um, really look back on my life. I'm uh, now in my, uh, you know, ninth decade. I'm, I'm over 80 years old, so uh, you look back on your life and you try to see what does it add up to. Uh, I also uh, felt that uh, I had a very interesting life uh, in the good sense and in the bad sense. I mean, spare me from interesting life. Uh, <laughs> it's like the Chinese uh, uh, right. say, may you live in an interesting time. Yeah, I lived in an interesting time. You could say in a number of interesting times. And I felt that that life experience um, shaped a lot of my thinking. And um, since I have been very successful in my career as a historian, uh, people think of me as only the person, you know, that had all these successes and uh, uh, published one book after another and no problems, you know, when in fact it was all based on a long life of almost 50 years of attempts and failures and wrong directions and uh, choices that led into dead ends and so forth. So I felt that that was a really important thing to to share with the people who uh, honor me and, and admire my work. I wanted to... Could you share with us uh, some of your experiences before you moved into the world of academics? Uh, I, I grew up in Vienna, and I grew up in a uh, sheltered, a middle-class environment with all the benefits thereof. And from one day to the next, I was defined by the new government as belonging to a group that was worse than vermin. We weren't even human, and we had no rights, and we had no recourse, and we had nobody to appeal to when we were abused. And that was a very shattering experience, apart from the actual experience of the persecution, but the concept that you could do this to human beings, you know, which of course is uh, true all over the world, and it's true in every place, but we never know it until it happens to us, or until it touches us directly. And it touched me directly very early in life. So I write about that, and I describe my experience in uh, a Nazi jail as a hostage for my father, and the experience of being stateless and having no country that would accept me until I came to the United States. So all these things really uh, had a great impact on me. For some people who suffered under the uh, Nazi regime, there was emotional defeat. 
for you, it seems like it was a foundational framework for your successes later in life. Well, of course, you have to look at it that way, uh, that I didn't know that at the time. I mean, from where I was sitting in 1939, it didn't look like there were going to be great successes ahead. That's something that I had to, you know, fight through and, and earn. And uh, uh, I, I should say that, uh, yes, I was a... I mean, part of what I'm describing in the book is an attitude of being a resistor, of resisting conformity, of resisting pessimism. Right? And I try to describe how that happened. Can you and describe I, how that happened for us now? I described that I had a, a family situation in which I early learned to resist authority and to mistrust it. Okay? I never felt comfortable with keeping people telling me in an authoritative way what I was supposed to do, to think, and to act. And I think that carried over into the political. Do you so, think that that resistance um, against authority uh, was unique to you or unique um, to the time and the culture from no, where you came. not unique to the culture and the time. As you said, many people went through that experience and became totally defeated by it. Other people went through the experience and became very conservative. All right? Uh, no, I think that was unique to me. And that's part of what I explore in the book with as much uh, detail as I can. And then, uh, then I describe my... Uh, you know, my struggle in America to, first of all, to become an American, to become an American writer, which was a great goal I had. I never, uh, you know, I thought I, uh, my main goal uh, as a young woman was to become a, a writer and to write in English. So learning to speak a, a second language well enough to uh, be a, a writer in it, that was a long struggle. And I, I spend a lot of time in this book uh, describing my growth as a writer and my various... That was, more, that was a difficult struggle because I wasn't successful. I was intermittently successful and then not for many years. And I had to really work hard on that. And uh, What and was then, the change that brought about your um, success? Is there well, that's only, as a writer, only after I became an academic. See, that was the thing. I mean, uh, before that, I had, uh, I had uh, some work published. We had a series of novels uh, yeah. that characterized social situations that right. you had observed. Uh, integration uh, in neighborhoods in New York. Right. And, well, I had, uh, I wrote one novel about the coming of fascism, which was uh, which I struggled for twelve years to write in English, and then I couldn't place it in America. It, it was they told me then it was twelve years after the end of World War Two, and fascism was no longer of interest to the publishers. And uh, then the book was translated and appeared in Vienna in Austria and was very successful there. And then later I. Um, uh, helped to organize a 
uh, publishing venture for, um, you know, sort of a cooperative for writers publishing their own work. And it was published in America, and it was quite well received. And then I wrote a novel about housing integration, and I was told that that was a public uh, a subject of no interest when I presented it to publishers two years before the start of the civil rights movement. So my timing was never very good. You were ahead of the curve. I was either behind the curve or ahead of the curve, but never quite in the middle of it. But then when I started as an academic, when I started uh, publishing, everything I wrote was immediately accepted and widely distributed and very successful. So I, I can't explain why that is. So maybe I learned to write better, or maybe the credentials helped. Well, I'd like to ask you about your political activities before you became an academic. But first, I'd like to tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Dr. Gerda Lerner about her recent book called Fireweed, a political autobiography. Dr. Lerner is a retired professor from the University of Wisconsin and one of the pioneers in the creation of the academic genre of women's history. Dr. Lerner, can you tell us about the political experiences that you had before uh, you became an academic? Well, I uh, went through the coming of fascism in Austria, and as a young student, I was marginally active in the anti-fascist student movements, which meant that I took considerable risk even being marginally involved, you risked a year or two in jail. So um, that kind of radicalized me. And then when I came to the United States, uh, I uh, fell in with a group of uh, left-wing people. My husband uh, my uh, uh, par- and lifelong partner, Carl Lerner, um, was a communist when I met him, and his friends were all people who had uh, sort of joined the left-wing radicalism during the Depression and were very active in the theater and in the film world. And so through them, I got into that circle. And when we, um, we moved to Hollywood uh, just prior to the outbreak of World War II, and uh, in that period then, during the war, uh, my husband entered the film business, and we were very involved in the unionization struggles in the film business. And uh, in the course of this, I also joined the Communist Party and uh, was active in neighborhood work and uh, child care work and in uh, work uh, uh, what sort of things were they were they well in the, in the war it was mostly to uh, you know help the war effort to uh, uh, promote uh, collaboration in the post-war world with uh, uh, you know to to make sure that fascism was defeated and not just uh, Germany uh, and then uh, I got involved in uh, 
a women's organization after World War II called the Congress of American Women, and that was a really wonderful organization, quite large at the time, but it was um, uh, attacked by the government in the Cold War period because it was affiliated with an international women's movement, and that uh, was a post-war women's movement in which 48 women from 48 countries joined together, and their interest was in uh, maintenance, maintenance of peace and uh, no use of atomic weapons. Okay, that of course that put us into opposition with the policy of the U.S. government, and then uh, a racial sort of not racial integration, it was an American uh, thing, but uh, respect for people of different cultures and races and a very strong uh, emphasis on, on child care, education, and health, for, health protection for children. And this American affiliate was a very active organization in which for four years black and white women organized by the tens of thousands. What characterized the organization was that it had a great interest in women's history and celebrated various events of the past, and that appealed to me a lot. So my interest in women's history was way ahead, again, my timing was different, was ahead of the uh, curve of everybody uh, getting an interest in that in the late 60s. This organization was destroyed, essentially, by uh, the Attorney General certifying it as a subversive organization and demanding that all its board members register as foreign agents, which they, of course, refused to do, since they weren't foreign agents of anybody. Can you explain the authority that the United States Attorney General had at that time to identify subversive organizations? Yeah, it was the McCarran Act. And all of it was declared unconstitutional about 20 years later. But by that time, the damage had been done. Uh, listed uh, about 60 or 70 organizations, some of them um, just totally innocuous organizations uh, that had no political aim. Some of them uh, organizations that were working for racial integration. And when an organization was listed, it was virtually uh, destroyed because uh, the penalties were very high and people were uh, sort of were faced with the choice of declaring themselves to be agents of a foreign government when they never even had any contact with anybody in a foreign government. I mean, it was a very, very dangerous uh, uh, precedent. And it's interesting that it was declared unconstitutional. But as you know, it takes uh, 20, 30 years to work its way through the courts. And, of course, the uh, whole aim of this was to create conformity with the government's position in the Cold War. Let's put this in the time frame when the McCarran Act was uh, adopted by the United States Congress and signed into law to, by President Truman. That was in uh, uh, the late uh, 40s? Yeah, early 50s. This is a dangerous precedent, which we did. We did the same thing. The government did the same thing 
at the end of World War One with the so-called Palmer raids, when thousands of uh, immigrants were deported without due due process and railroaded into jails and everything else. And uh, I think I see a, a dangerous uh, parallel emerging today, too, that worries me a lot. In other words, when we decide that a group of people is declared to be deviant and our enemy, and we do that without due process and without allowing these people to state their side of the story fairly, then we are undermining democracy in a very, very dangerous way. And I think uh, I wanted to tell that part of the story, too, because I don't think people are too much aware of it. Well, let me ask you about your uh, attitudes towards your children's adopting their own uh, political ideas as they were growing up. I think that uh, raising children in this period of the Cold War was very difficult if you really believed in free speech. I don't know about yourself. You were probably too young, but my children grew up in at the time in New York City in the public schools, and they were told by their teachers and by their government that uh, if a nuclear bomb fell on New York City, that if they ducked under their desk and hit their head with their hands, they would be perfectly safe. Now, you know, a greater lie cannot be spoken than that. It was totally false. And nothing would protect those children if a bomb fell on New York City. And we were forced, uh, we were told that our children were supposed to have dog tags on day and night in case of a nuclear attack so you could identify them. Well, as parents and as people who work for peace and people who work for nuclear disarmament, we could not go along with that. And so it forced us to go to the school and say, my, my daughter is not going to wear that. And it forced her to become different from the other children, right? Which I regretted, but uh, it was a question of principle. Uh, you know, in the horrible, unimaginable event of a nuclear war, there would be nobody to collect those dog tags, nor would there be parents to whom to send them, right? I mean, we know that. So it was this kind of thing. There was a constant pressure for conformity. And um, on the other hand, we, did, we never uh, tried to indoctrinate our children in our ideas, we would, we felt that, uh, well, we exposed them, of course, to um, contacts with people of, of color and people from other countries and other cultures. That we certainly did. But we, we felt that they should may find their own way, and they have. Dr. Lerner, your book ends in 1958. That's 42 years ago, a significant portion of your life, uh, the academic portion, accrued since. Why did you choose to end it then? Well, because I wanted to tell the story of what went before um, my successful part of my life started. Because this part of my life that I spent as an academic, you know, uh, 
it's widely available. Everybody can get it on the internet or wherever they want, or by reading my books. And it's uh, well known. And and uh, I felt that the other part of my life was not at all known. And so I wanted to show that. And uh, I also it was very important to me to show that I had gone to through many decades of struggling with failure of various sorts or with difficulties and obstacles that I had to overcome. When my husband was blacklisted, we had to move, we moved back to New York and we had to start all over again, economically, totally insecure. And he happened to made a very brilliant career as a film editor uh, afterwards, but again, we didn't know that. But what happened to me was that my second novel could not find a publisher. As a result of him being blacklisted, do you think? No. It had to do with this housing integration, with the subject of racial integration, for which there was no interest in '58. Now, three years later, there was a lively interest in it, but uh, I didn't know, I I couldn't know that, right? And so um, I felt uh, really blocked at every route, and so I decided uh, my children were uh, growing up, and my daughter was entering college, and my son was uh, in high school, so I decided I would take a few courses so that I could write a different kind of writing. I thought maybe novel writing was not the way I was going to make a career as a writer, and I was going to write a historical novel. And I wrote a, a started a historical novel on the Grimcase sisters from South Carolina, who were the only white women from the South who became active abolitionists. And then I found that I needed to learn more about history to do this, and so I began to take a few courses in history, and that led very quickly to my uh, taking a, an undergraduate degree, and uh, it took me four years of part-time study to get an undergraduate degree, and then I went on to graduate study, and I had uh, a historical biography of the Grimke sisters was my dissertation. And I managed to earn an MA and a PhD in three years after that. And that began my academic career. Well, Dr. Gerda Lerner, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to uh, tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, uh, I'll recommend a book that takes us back to colonial America, and it, it reads like fiction. It's by Laurel Ulrich, A Midwife's Tale, and it's a very fine book. Dr. Gerda Lerner, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you for asking me. It was a pleasure. Dr. Gerda Lerner who died on January 2nd, 2013, was a founder of the academic genre of women's history, 
Fireweed, a political autobiography, is her story of her life up to the time that she entered Columbia University in 1958. Gerda Lerner died on January 2nd, 2013. This interview was recorded in October 2002. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541, and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.